0: Are you ready for the world's most comfortable pants? Doer stands for natural performance and simplicity. Designed with the belief that comfort, style, and function should complement each other. That means a single pair of Doer pants can take you from the bike lane to the boardroom and out to dinner, all while maintaining a sense of effortless sophistication. And here's the thing, Doers has got a lot more than just pants. They also have great shorts too. And you should check out the warm weather Doer polo, the only polo Made from Dura's signature Soft fabric, which is plant-based, lightweight, and it serves up lightweight performance in warm weather. It's bacteria-resistant, moisture-wicking, and temperature-regulating due to the blend of prima cotton and tensile fabric. And the Performance Denim, which they're known for, they want you to know it's the most comfortable pant in the world. And Dura wants you to try out and try on the most comfortable pant in the world. Go to doer.ca, use the promo code SDPN, 15% off your first order. Again, it's D-U-E-R.ca, promo code SDPN, get 15% off and wear some comfy pants. Get in on Stanley Cup Finals action Lightning versus Avalanche at in Sports Interaction, Canada Sportsbook. Bet on the game before it starts, live and in play, or I don't know, will Nikita Kucherov continue to lead the way for the Lightning? Doing all right since 1997. Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit. Play and cash out. Join now to see all that sports betting has to offer. Head to sportsinteraction.com slash STPN. That's sportsinteraction.com slash STPN. 19 plus. Please play responsibly.
1: This is Agent Provocateur
0: with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook.
1: Welcome to another edition, another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wilde.
0: Hello. How are you today, Adam? I'm good, Alan. It's a nice sunny day. It, it, it feels like LA in Toronto today. Uh, it's like what you guys get 11 months of the year, we get for three. So I'm just going to get out there and enjoy it. But uh, um, I've been, um, you know, we're recording this at night and I've been looking forward to this episode all day because this is somebody from the moment that, that you and I started talking, this was a person that you wanted to have on the show because of not only the respect you have for this person the effect that they had on your life but also the unbelievable resume they have
1: well adam you may remember uh when you called me that day uh 11 months ago when i was out on the beach uh in ventura uh and and you called to try to convince me to do a podcast mm-hmm. uh and and we started talking and and we must have talked for uh, over an hour, maybe even close to 90 minutes. Um, when, I, when I said, okay, let's do a demo, and we talked about different guests uh, to come on, uh, I brought up uh, from our very first conversation the name Bill Hodgman. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to let the, the viewers in the audience know a little bit, to understand what you're about to see and hear uh, and experience. Uh, many of you know that out of law school, I, uh, my first job as an attorney was as a deputy district attorney. I was a prosecutor uh, assigned to the downtown LA courthouse. And uh, after my first year in the office, I moved over into a uh, elite unit called the Hardcore Gang Division where we did nothing but prosecute gang murder cases. And over the course of uh, my entire time in the office, I prosecuted um, over 40 murder cases. Uh, The vast majority of them were gang murder cases. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: Why am I telling you this? Um, Our guest today is the legendary prosecutor, from, uh, from in L.A., who in L.A. circles and really on a national level is regarded as one of the greatest trial lawyers ever. And I'm not exaggerating at all. Um, when I came into the office, really Bill into the DA's office, 20, 24 years of age, Bill Hodgman was regarded as the conscience of the office. Anybody who wanted to know which way the wind was blowing uh, would be able to to go spend some time with Bill and, and get a read. Uh, his, his door was always open to everyone. Uh, I was fortunate you're gonna hear um, how we met and, and how uh, we became friends and then ultimately um, best friends uh, he was my mentor and, and had a profound, profound impact on my entire life and, uh, his friendship, uh, was one of the greatest things that, uh, anyone has ever bestowed upon me. I learned from him in every conversation. Uh, there were times when I was in trial, uh, uh, in, in a murder case and on a 15 minute recess would literally sprint out of the courtroom, race up to his office, barge right in. And with wild eyes, Bill, Bill help. Uh, what would you do in this situation? And he would calmly give me calm, measured advice and I'd be like, thanks. And I'd sprint back down uh, the stairs and uh, race back into the courtroom just under the 15 minute mark and uh, and and have a new way of of reacting to uh, something that had occurred uh, in the murder trial. And that happened countless, countless, countless times uh, for those today that don't have uh recognition of of bill hodgman you're going to hear it soon but um uh he was one of the lead prosecutors in the oj simpson uh double murder case probably the most famous case in the history of of the united states maybe even in the history of the world mm-hmm. um and and we're going to talk about that in and some of Uh, his observations uh, uh, about the case. Um, He also handled many other high profile cases. uh, Some that we talk about like Charles Keating uh, in the remnants of the savings and loan uh, disaster in the United States in the early 1990s. Some we don't that maybe we'll have to discuss in a part two one day in the future um, Bill was the lead prosecutor in the Michael Jackson child molestation investigation, a multi-jurisdictional investigation involving Santa Barbara and, and Los Angeles counties. Uh, and, and Bill led that, um, Bill was the, uh, lead prosecutor, uh, uh, of the Todd Bridges case, uh, a case where. The actor and star of a TV series called Different Strokes um, was charged with attempted murder uh, that occurred inside a, uh, a rock house. Um, there were numerous other high profile cases, and Bill was behind all of them. So this is this is an episode uh, that might be uh, a little self-indulgent. But at the same time, I really think people out there are going to enjoy the discussion, uh, going to learn something from it. Um, it's, it's part of my life, this period of my life and bill was the central figure, uh, in my life at that time. So I hope everybody indulges me with one episode where we can, uh, veer off away from sports uh when i agreed uh with you adam to 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 do this podcast this was certainly uh an area i wanted to explore and and here we are so uh, unless you have anything further to add let's get to it let's get to it our guest this week was an la county prosecutor for 41 years he joined the L.A. County District Attorney's Office in 1978. Uh, I don't want to make him feel old, but I was still in high school. <laughs> He's tried <laughs> to a jury over 140 felony cases, including over 40 murder cases. He was the lead prosecutor in many of the most high profile criminal cases in Los Angeles history, including the attempted murder trial of actor Todd Bridges from the Different Strokes TV series. The securities fraud trial of Charles Keating related to the collapse of Lincoln Savings and Loan. I was actually present in the courtroom during Bill's a portion of Bill's closing argument. He led the criminal investigation of Michael Jackson involving multiple allegations of child molestation. He was the lead prosecutor of Marion Suge Knight, the founder of Death Row Records, for his numerous probation violations, including the gang fight in the lobby of the Las Vegas MGM Grand Hotel that precipitated a few hours later the murder of Tupac. And he served as one of the lead prosecutors with Marcia Clark and Christopher Darden in what was called the trial of the century. The People versus OJ Simpson, the prosecution of Hall of Fame former NFL running back OJ Simpson for the double homicide of his ex wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ron Goldman. Also, a fellow huge fan of Bruce Springsteen (laughs) that we've always had (laughs) in common with each other, (laughs) my mentor in the DA's office. And my mentor in life, a big
2: welcome to William Bill Hodgman. Alan, thank you very much. You know, I uh, I don't want to preempt a question, but uh, in as you were describing my little bio there, it took me back to the time when you and I really first met. And here's how I remember it. I uh I was director of central operations for the district attorney's office at the time. And I was walking through the 18th floor hallways of the criminal courts building in downtown Los Angeles. I recall it being shortly before noontime or lunchtime. I'm walking down a hallway and behind a closed door, I hear strains of Bruce Springsteen music emanating from an office. And I thought, I've got to check this out. (laughs) (laughs) I opened the door and there was Alan and another one of our uh, youngish deputy district attorneys at the time. And of course, uh, an immediate bond was made. And for Alan and I, that is a a bond that has existed over the decades. But Alan, that was the seminal moment. That was Bruce brought us together way back when, I think circa 1993.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and and we've been to numerous Bruce shows and other East Street Band member shows over the years. Mm. Uh, I, re- I remember that I was not yet a deputy DA. I was working as a law... I graduated from law school, and I was working at the DA's office as a law clerk waiting for my bar results. And uh, for those that don't know... You write the California bar exam a couple of times a year. It's offered. The traditional time is July. And I I wrote the bar in July and you get your results in November, Thanksgiving weekend. And between starting at the DA's office in August, I had a couple of weeks off after taking the bar, which I barely remember from my uh, inebriated state over those two weeks of <laughs> celebrating with my friends. You can't really celebrate when you graduate from law school because the next day is like, holy shit, I got to start studying for the bar. Yeah. So so here I am in, in, in July after taking the bar. Um, August, I started the DA's office and I'm a law clerk waiting for my bar results. And it was then I was I was in an office And I vividly remember I was playing some Springsteen music and you walked in. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that, and we had a whole conversation about Bruce uh, and, and that began uh, a a wonderful mentorship and, and very special friendship uh, that's lasted to the very, to, to today.
2: Yep. And, and so it began. Yeah.
0: Well, Bill, I got to ask, because we know Alan is a confident, tough um, uh, pro player agent. He's very, very outspoken about the causes that
2: he believes in. What was a young law clerk, Alan Walsh, like? Well, um, I can't address, Adam, so much the young law clerk aspect. I mean, the immediate bond with Springsteen. (laughs) But I can tell you over time, watching Alan mature as a young trial lawyer in the district attorney's office, uh, we discussed cases many, many times. And what impressed me is that Alan was what I call a natural. And by that, I mean someone who instinctively, intuitively is, is born to be a trial lawyer, And a trial lawyer is a unique animal amongst lawyers. Not all lawyers want to be trial lawyers. They're afraid to go to court. They want to be transactional lawyers and stay in an office. But being a trial lawyer, which is what I always aspired to be, to be the best possible trial lawyer I possibly could be, it requires elements of of performance and athleticism and tactics and strategy and creativity, creativity. And in my discussions with Alan as a young formative lawyer, um, I was impressed that he instinctively, intuitively had these qualities. uh, As we discussed trial presentation, order of witnesses, how to structure the overall presentation of your case, how to put on the defense attorney hat for a moment and think, how would you attack your own case? Uh, and and then defend, you know, uh, prepare your case to defend against those perceived weaknesses. Is Alan at a very early stage in his career had that ability? So he was a natural. Uh, I saw him in court infrequently because I uh, was busy with a lot of things. But uh, what I saw was a guy born to be a trial lawyer. Um, tough, fair. Creative, Uh, uh, he had that performance element of, uh, you know, basically putting on a show, telling a story for the twelve jurors in a box, um, and the court. So, Hmm. back to Alan as a young attorney, and I think he was a natural. I love that. I love that. Well, Well, Bill,
1: let me ask you this: What motivated you to want to become a
2: prosecutor? Well, uh, it I started in high school and I'll I'll compress this, but uh, I was uh, in an economics class and the professor in the class said that uh, there was going to be a, a law day presentation down at Santa Ana Courthouse in Orange County, California on a Saturday. And in lieu of preparing an upcoming econ report, if one of the students or several of the students wanted to go attend Law Day and prepare a report and present back to the class about what they saw and heard uh, that could be submitted in lieu of the econ report. Well, that was a natural for me. <laughs> I'm going to Santa Ana. And, uh, but, but what I found in talk, there was a mini mock trial that went on and there was a, a young DA and an actual judge and a defense attorney. Uh, they presented a mini mock trial, which basically occurred within a matter of about 90 minutes. And in talking with the participants afterwards, uh, it just uh, their their passion for how much they loved their job impressed me. And it it resonated within me. And that was, uh, you know, a junior high school that became just kind of the the notion of, yeah, I'd like to do that. And I thought about it. You know, uh, not so much being a transactional lawyer, but a stand up lawyer in court for some of the elements I've talked about. The, the element of, in the sense, performing in front of an audience, a, an audience of 12, albeit uh, the competitive aspect. It was athletic. I had a background as an athlete in football and wrestling and rugby and things, but the intense preparation for the contest the contest itself, which Alan, as you well know, when you're in trial, Adam, when you're in trial, you are in 150%. You are so all in that life inverts. (laughs) Trial becomes your reality. What's outside of trial is something else, particularly in a long trial, which can go on for months. Mm -hmm. You really have that sense of inverted reality. But your powers of concentration and focus are so heightened. Um, it's uh, akin to be being in a game. You know, you, you don't yeah. think about other things. It's all the contest. And then following the trial, so to speak, much like following a game or an athletic event, uh, there's what I call the denouement. Um you, you wind down. You kind of adjust to normal life again. Uh, you uh, gather your reserves. You rest up a little bit. And then you get that hunger to go back and do it again. Let's go back to trial because it's uh, the intensity of the experience is uh, what I enjoyed and was passionate about, and uh, that you know carried over to uh, applying to law school, getting into law school, as far as being a prosecutor, Alan. Uh, I clerked for a firm which uh, substantial part of its practice was uh, high-end criminal defense in the San Francisco Bay Area community. Uh, I'll tell you, it was uh, uh, individuals either charged with or had been convicted of high-level drug trafficking. Um, We did some of the high publicity murder cases. Anyway, suffice it to say, what I saw about the senior side of criminal practice motivated me to want to go to the other side of the table and become a district attorney. And I was fortunate enough to be hired by the LA County DA's office, one of the premier, if not the premier prosecutorial uh, office in the country. And that was that. Wow. And some unbelievable
0: stories along the way. And Alan, where do you want to I mean, you know you you and Bill have traded stories for years. where Where do we even start with a resume like this?
1: Well, um, I always like to to talk about the anatomy of a trial and 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 Bill talked about it a little bit. Uh, just to add something uh, from what Bill was just saying about the denouement. Um, when I would try a case, and, and I tried about 40 murder cases in five years as, as a deputy DA, um, uh, 35 of them in the hardcore gang division. So I was doing gang murder cases, and there were so many of, of the cases backed up, ready to be tried. It was literally one after the other, after the other, after the other for, for almost five years every time i got a verdict on a case i would my emotions would crash and i would get incredibly depressed for 3 or 4 days it was it was chemical and at first i didn't recognize what was going on with me gosh why am i so down why am i so blue why am i so sad it was literally my body um, readjusting itself to life outside of trial to life within trial. When I would be in trial on a murder case, and I'm sure Bill is very familiar feeling to you, you never really have a good night's sleep. You Mm -hmm. might sleep for a couple of hours, but your mind is going all the time. And, you know, back then, and I have no idea how it is now, you were dealing with some old timer judges who get very cranky when your witnesses are not lined up, ready to go right at 10 a.m. And of course, they could blow off a whole morning doing other stuff and all of a sudden take a lunch break and you don't actually start until 1.30 but the one day you don't have a witness there ready to get on the stand at 10 a.m., the judge is screaming at you in front of the jury. And it's like you live your life like that when in trial. You're hypersensitive to your surroundings. You're constantly living on that razor's edge for the entire trial. Every There's no help. Mm. There's no second chair, third chair, fourth chair. You're on your own. And, and, and Bill's reputation when I joined the office was, he was known, you know, the whispers in the office, the greatest trial lawyer in the history of the office. And I hope I'm not, um, embarrassing you, but that was your reputation and Bill's being very kind, but y- y- you, know, I would be in trial and, My first jury trial ever was a felony jury trial. And as Bill could tell you, deputy DAs usually spend a year or two doing misdemeanors, Mm -hmm. uh, primarily DUIs in trial one after the other, after the other, or go to juvenile court and you're doing juvenile cases. It's usually several years before You get to actually try a felony case. I was sworn in as a a lawyer after passing the bar in in early December, and I was picking a jury on a a, a felony trial three or four days later. I had no idea what I was doing, (laughs) And, and I was literally coming upstairs on breaks and running into Bill's office and running into another DA's office saying, okay, this is what's going on now. You know, <laughs> what do I do next? And I was listen and run down the stairs back into the courtroom on a ten minute break. Run back in and be like, okay, here we go. And and there were many times, you know, especially that first trial where the judge would be like, you know, rolling his eyes, calling me sidebar, and you know, um, uh, Mr. Walsh, you're not supposed to stand there when addressing the jury, you should be standing over here. And oh, okay, <laughs> thank you, Judge. I, I mean, I literally didn't know. And uh, th- to me, the process, the learning process on how to try a case, uh, and it is a process, took, took time, mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful revelation. And every day I was learning from the greats from from the legends. And uh, that was my experience. You know, Bill, what was your experience like when you started trying cases one after the other after the other?
2: Well, when I joined the district attorney's office, um, we went through a several week training period and then we were assigned out to various courts scattered throughout Los Angeles County. One of those courts was the Compton Court. And at the time, this was late 78, 1979, uh, gang activity in the Compton area was at an all time high. Uh, PCP was the drug of choice and horrendously violent crime was being committed in that area. Um, And it was an area that none of my fellow classmates wanted to go to, wanted to be assigned to. Uh, I said, I want to be assigned to Compton. I want to go to the roughest, toughest place where I can get the most trial experience as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, okay, off to Compton, you go. And it, it was, you know, law west of the Pecos. It, it was wild, wild witness issues. Uh, homicides were uh, happening all over the place. The courthouse itself was a place you couldn't leave really to go to lunch. You couldn't walk out of the courthouse and go to lunch someplace uh, because you could get shot. Uh, We had uh, on occasion uh, a bullet hole uh, or a bullet fired into the courthouse. But the thing was very early on, Alan, much like yourself, uh, I was able to be in a position to try uh, heavy cases at an early stage in my career. And I just tried case after case after case. Uh, Again, extraordinary witness problems, uh, evidentiary problems, which you had to overcome on the fly. But it was a a tremendous uh, learning experience for me. And I I came into the office as well. People that I looked up to, that is uh, lawyers within the office that I looked up to, were the ones who were the, the master trial lawyers. And my thought was, I want to be like them. I want to learn like them. And much like you came into my office, I would go into their offices at the end of the day. I've I've got this particular issue. How do I handle this quandary, that type of thing? Um, So my aspiration was always to be the best trial lawyer I could possibly be. I read books uh, talk to senior trial lawyers and try to accumulate experience either vicarious or personal along the way. Now you once
1: told me, and I, I remembered it all, you know, all these years that um, most trials are won or lost in jury selection.
2: Do you want to talk about that? I, yes, I'd like to talk about that. And I have to, uh, frame it almost in the past tense and and here's here's why i believe you know there's an art to trial lawyering and there are some who uh trial lawyers who are true artists uh are a natural Um, and then there are journey person trial lawyers you know who can do the basics of putting on evidence but i always felt within that art there was a special art to jury selection and for me, back in the day, I had the ability to memorize all the jurors' names, all the prospective jurors' names. And so when I stood up to talk to the jury, uh, invariably, I would not stand behind a lectern. I would stand in front of the jury. I would address the jurors by name, indicate, you know, uh, Mr. Miller, do you agree with the uh, Ms. Smith, over here, about this concept of aider and better liability in a criminal case. Do you think that's fair? And I would bounce amongst the jurors and uh, and uh, say, in the Charles Keating case, we had what we call a, an 18 pack. We had 12 jurors in the box and six alternate jurors, all of whom we addressed at the same point in time in terms of Wadir or the questioning. And I memorized all 18 of their names. And uh, I did that for the reason of showing command of the courtroom, uh, command of the information, command of my case, and to develop whatever tenuous bond I could with that particular array of jurors. Invariably, over the years, when I'd finish a trial, be it long or short. Oftentimes, you would meet the jurors in the hallway, the judge after discharging the jury would say, uh, you know, the attorneys will be available to talk to you if they wish. And if you wish to speak with them in the hallway after the case, but jurors, you are now discharged. And when I'd finish with the the matters at hand, be it a sentence, uh, setting a sentencing date or whatever, I would go into the hallway and jurors would remain and they'd sometimes we're enthusiastic and want to talk to you about this element of the case and that element of the case, almost without exception, they always said, how in the world did you memorize all of our names in such a short period of time? That, that one little facet seemed to be so impressive and it all lent itself to what I was trying to present in the courtroom. That is command of my case, The jury can trust me i know what's going on and you know jurors please follow me so the reason i prefaced all that with past tense is because now due to well actually in part due to the simpson case but others as well jurors are referred to as numbers now Mm uh greater anonymity for the jurors, uh, there has been more judicial intervention in terms of justices or judges controlling voir and asking a lot of questions and very much limiting trial attorney time to, to build that rapport with the jury. So um, it, things have changed. It's a where I, uh, an element of trial lawyer, and you know, I used to really enjoy um, has diminished increasingly over time. Mm -hmm. So um, the LADA's office
1: had a uh, very difficult record of securing convictions in what were considered high-profile cases. And really, the, the case that turned the tide in that regard at the time was the Charles Keating case. Mm -hmm. It was a huge, huge case. It came out of the savings and loan crisis in the early 1990s in the United States. Many retirees and investors were um, fraudulently led into purchasing bonds with a higher interest rate that were not insured Mm -hmm. by the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And when the savings and loan, the banks failed, as they tend to do in the United States, the bondholders were left with worthless paper and had uh, their entire life savings wiped out. And Bill led that prosecution uh, with a team Uh, against the founder and owner of Lincoln Savings and Loan, a gentleman by the name of Charles Keating. And uh, that trial that went on, and I believe, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, you went by way of indictment. You took that case to a grand jury and secured an indictment before coming in and trying the case. Is that correct?
2: Yes. uh, And Yeah, not to get too esoteric, but there is kind of an interesting backstory to that case. I I was basically airdropped into the case as the lead trial lawyer on the very eve of the announcement of the indictments. Mm -hmm. So here, this very complex securities fraud case uh, had been in various forms of presentation in front of a secret grand jury for months and months. The then elected district attorney, Ira Reiner, had a special prosecutor, basically a a crony friend of of his, who, uh, as was described to me, had created shambles of the case. And uh, certain influential people went to the district attorney, I'm told, and said, you have a disaster on your hands uh, you've got to shed the special prosecutor and you've got to bring in a trial lawyer to handle the case here on out. So here is a case with millions and millions of documents, 17,000 victims, uh, enormously complex. And uh, I am asked one evening, I get called in and I was asked to uh, volunteer here <laughs> to. Uh, lead the trial prosecution, and that the announcement of the indictment was imminent. And I knew this, we would have big guns brought in on the defense, probably the best defense that money could buy. It was enormously complex case. So it was really, I was at a great position of disadvantage. Uh, The local news, legal newspaper, the Daily Journal, uh, repeatedly uh, after I, it was announced I was taking over the case, said, in essence, well, Bill uh, may be a, a very fine, renowned homicide trial lawyer, but what does he know about trying a securities fraud case? And this particular case at the time, the largest uh, fraud case in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And uh, It was a question I asked myself. (laughs) (laughs) How would you have answered that question? (laughs) Many, many times it was uh, uh, it it was tough, but uh, I was able to assemble a a nucleus of a a good team. Uh, And I was in, in all of the. Volumes of testimony and documents. I knew there was a a nucleus of a case. I knew I could sell to a jury that I could credibly take to a jury. So my job was to keep keep the case alive. And Alan, as you said, uh, I did not have a hand in crafting the indictment. And uh, truth be told, uh, over half the indictment was dismissed prior to trial. And what the court didn't dismiss. I dismissed myself uh, for uh, on certain counts that were just surplusage, which added nothing to the core of my case, but uh, had a very strong theme. And I I have to say uh, that was one of my penultimate trial performances because I was dealing with a a field of law of prosecution. I wasn't familiar with initially. And uh, what I did know. And what I had great confidence in was in my ability to try a case. And that's what saw me through. Now,
0: you know, and, and I hate to do this to you again, Bill, because Alan did it to you earlier, but I was <laughs> five or six when that case happened. So I'm an, I'm an 88. So, mm-hmm. you know, for, for us, you know, my generation can relate to securities fraud. We can relate to what happened in 2008. We can relate to what's happened over the course of the pandemic, which I think uh, certain people are raising their eyebrows at. Uh, Bernie Madoff is a name that we all are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Can you, you know, it, it's easy to see, you, you've you defrauded seniors of their life savings. It's easy to see how the public can grab onto that. It's a very easy thing to um, feel something for, feel an immense sympathy for, um, but obviously, when you get down to the, the, the court, anything can happen. Can I ask you, and this has been a, a theme in my life when I've, when I've watched this stuff, the idea of prosecuting a, a high profile case like this and how hard it is, why is it so hard to secure um, when it's so blatantly obvious in the case of Charles Keating and some of the other uh, things that I brought up there? Why is it so hard to secure um, jail time? Like, you know, one of the things that everybody kind of still scratches their head at is after 2008 and all of the mortgage securities and all the bond, everything that went into that, nobody went to jail. So why is it and you you, you know, Alan references, why was the L.A. County having so much trouble
2: and why do we still have that problem? How did you circumvent that? Well, Adam, uh, part of it was the the thematic way in which I approached the case. Uh, At my disposal, I had over 30 million documents, uh, many of which were in a repository in Arizona under the control of the feds of uh, U.S. Department of Justice. Um, I knew the compelling story was not in the esoteric language of even a, a large subset of those documents. I made my case a very human story. -hmm. Uh, We had there were seventeen thousand potential victims. We had about twenty, which we alleged as victims, and I made the case a a very human story. It was very document light. Uh, I think I presented about sixty witnesses overall, but only three hundred exhibits, and so it was very paper light. I wanted to have the victims tell their story, and then I had low-level bond sellers who unwittingly, not knowing the risks involved with the bonds they were uh, trying to sell to their family members and neighbors and uh, with within the, uh, the uh, walls of an offices of Lincoln Savings and Loan. Um, I was basically able to craft a very human sort of case. Um, and run up the the knowledge, the criminal knowledge, and the, the really masterful criminal plot on the part of Charles Keating. Now, the damage that was done, because we, we were let, I was allowed to get into the consequences and not so much a matter of evidence, but over a dozen people committed suicide because of the financial loss. Uh, others, as Alan was pointing out, many, many of the victims were retirees. They had no ability to recoup uh, through income the money that was lost. And it was college education funds for their grandchildren. Uh, People were forced to leave their their home, their residence. They lost their home and move into the garage of their children. They're just very, very human consequences. Uh, The judge on the case, interestingly, was Judge Lance Ito, later of O.J. Simpson trial fame. No kidding. Iwa, yeah. Yes, this was uh, the case that vaulted Judge Ito into greater prominence amongst the, the trial judges in Los Angeles County. But even at sentencing, Ito uh, very kind of uh, eloquently talked about sometimes uh, greater pain and loss and trauma is inflicted at the point of the pen as opposed to the point of a gun. And I'll, I'll tell you something,
1: Bill, that I, I don't know if you remember or not, but I wanted to go into the courtroom and watch the sentencing hearing. And uh, Charles Keating was sitting there in his suit and tie cufflinks, um, many family members there behind him in support. And I was sitting over on the prosecution side, and I remember it to this day, second row. Uh, a place that I usually didn't sit in a courtroom. I was usually up at counsel table, and there I am sitting, and I watched the sentencing hearing unfold. And and Adam, to your point, uh, Judge Ito sentenced Charles Keating to prison, and then the uh, discussion uh, went to should he be given a date to surrender or should he be remanded into custody immediately? Mm -hmm. And Judge Ito ruled that he was to be remanded into custody immediately. And then what happened was a bunch of L.A. County sheriff's deputies who manned the courtrooms all of a sudden start gathering behind and around Charles Keating his lawyer, and I believe his lawyer's name was James Neal from uh, from uh, Kirk, uh, Kirkland Kirk. and Ellis, Kirkland and Ellis, yeah. um, stood st- stood up and sort of whispered to him. And I was watching. I was watching intently what was happening in the courtroom. Charles Keating started taking his cufflinks off. Mm-hmm. He undid his tie. He was uh, undid his tie and took that off. And his family members started sobbing and you could hear the wailing going on in the courtroom as he was handcuffed and led into the lockup of the courtroom. You know, normally you're used to seeing, you know, gang members, uh, drug dealers coming out of there. It was the only time really I had seen someone, like Charles Keating, you know, a bank owner and president uh, uh, being handcuffed and led into the lockup. And it had a profound impact on me.
2: Yeah, it's uh, two things, Adam. One, like uh, Alan was just alluding to. uh, You're you're seeing the rich white guy. Go into lockup, which you don't see, which you don't see. The other element I wanted to bring to your attention was, you know, at the sentencing hearing, we were allowed to permit uh, or to present victim impact evidence. Uh, and again, the, the, the nature of the financial carnage, the, the human toll was uh, something I was able to present. And uh, that was meaningful to Judge Ito. Uh, Keating was sentenced to the maximum permissible at the time, which was 10 years in state prison. In California law, uh, in light of the Keating case, it was understood, you might say, in the legal community, that uh, the sentencing laws needed to, uh, in terms of maximum sentence, needed to catch up with the gravity and enormity of some of these huge financial loss cases. So it did prompt changes for excessive taking uh, and loss In those type of cases, Uh, but the maximum we could get was 10 years, and that's what Keating got. Wow. Wow. So
1: so let's transition because you brought up uh, Judge Ito. Um, I actually tried a case in front of Judge Ito before the Charles Keating case, a murder case. And uh, now we're going to fast forward a couple of years and Judge Ito has been assigned to another case, uh, maybe the most famous murder case in the history of the United States. O.J. Simpson and and Bill, you were one of three lead prosecutors on that case. Uh, can you start by talking about how you got involved in that case?
2: Yes, uh- at the time of the, the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, I was, uh, my title was director of central operations. As director, I had oversight over uh, the trial divisions in the central district, as well as our elite trial lawyer unit, the, then known as the special trials unit, uh, amongst other things. So uh, on the natural, from the very beginning, uh, that was a case that was going to go to our special trials unit. Uh, From the very beginning, uh, Marsha Clark was determined to be um, the one to lead the the prosecution at that time. Um, That case, and I I do uh, training lectures for prosecutors and detectives, sometimes even judges about that case. One thing that uh, characterized that case was just the extraordinary events that occurred within the case, things that you usually don't see. For example, uh, the uh, Simpson is arrested, he's charged, a preliminary hearing is set for uh, roughly about uh, two weeks hence. In the interim, there was a uh, concern that Simpson's then lawyer on the case, then lead lawyer, Robert Shapiro, who was renowned for continuing cases into oblivion. And there was a concern that it may be a year 16 months before we even get this case to a preliminary hearing. Accordingly, it was decided on high that we would pursue a grand jury indictment, which is an alternative way of, of charging the case and getting it into uh, what, the Superior Court for trial sooner. So, that case, uh, Marsha Clark and the then head of the special trials unit started presenting evidence to the grand jury that went on for about a week. And then on a Friday, I get a call from the uh, basically the head judge in the courthouse and says, Bill, we've got a problem. Uh, our grand jurors of which they're about 24. And, you know, this is considered a sacrosanct body where confidentiality is key and you have to be so careful about making sure they're not contaminated by media or other factors. But I'm informed that uh, bailiffs who have been working with the grand jurors uh, have overheard them talking about things extraneous to what the evidence they've heard thus far, things that were in the media, Uh, particularly a prior incident where O.J. Simpson had broken into of uh, The condo of Nicole Brown uh, at the time, Nicole was living a few blocks from where she was ultimately murdered. But uh, Nicole Brown called LAPD 911 and said, you've got to get over here. The kids are here. O.J.'s breaking in. I'm afraid of what he's going to do. And in the background, you can hear uh, Simpson bellowing and crashing as he's trying to break through what appeared to be sort of French doors and and Nicole's pleading with Simpson please you know OJ do not come in the kids the kids she's pleading with the 911 dispatcher get someone here quick so very inflammatory information you can hear the panic in Nicole's voice well pursuant to a public records act request that 911 tape if you will that recording was released to the media oh. and despite admonitions by the judge who oversaw the grand jury to avoid the media, do not discuss anything about anything outside the evidence that you hear. Now we have a report, our grand jurors, several of them are openly talking about the 911 tape. So the bottom line grand jury is contaminated. Uh, we had to recuse the grand jury, that is, shut it down, discharge the grand jurors. And what we had was a situation where in just a, a handful of days hence, we had to go to court and start presenting evidence uh, at a preliminary hearing where Bob Shapiro, the defense attorney, would be there to contest the evidence. On a particular, the Friday night of that, the date of the recusal, uh, the, the head of the special trials unit says, hey, I, I've i got too much work on my plate. I, I, I can't help Marsha with the prelim. And um, that evening, the district attorney at the time, Gil Garcetti, basically turned to me after deliberating with others and said, Bill, uh, I'd like you to help Marsha get through the prelim. So Alan talked about, you know, picking up a case on the fly uh, that night, I picked up grand jury transcripts. I asked Marsha, what are you not ready on? And she wasn't ready in the coroner's evidence. Uh, There was uh, some evidence regarding the knife shop and O.J. Simpson's purchase of a knife. So uh, in a matter of days, I prepped on half the case, and then we went to court and uh, presented evidence. And I I thought at the end of that preliminary hearing, which took about a week, that I would revert back to my role as having more uh, oversight over the case in the special trials unit. And uh, it was asked of me, well, you know, stay on and kind of do your day job and as director, but stay on and assist with the case. Basically, you know, I'd be a co-prosecutor uh, to the extent you can. Well, the nature of that case was it it sucked up your life. It was so, so dynamic. So many things happened that uh, I had to abdicate my role as director and uh, begin to work to staff out the case so we could be ready for trial. And then, um, and we're off and running. So that and, was. It. And 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 Adam, um,
1: to describe what was going on in LA. Uh, Particularly around the courthouse, around the time of jury selection in that case, an entire city of media popped up out of nowhere around and encircling the entire downtown criminal courts building in Los Angeles. It was nicknamed Camp O.J. Wow. Yeah. And. I mean, it was tent after tent after tent, huge media tents. You had media from all over the world come into L.A. reporting on this. And, you know, even, you know, I was assigned to the criminal courts building. Um, My office was on the 18th floor, you know, just down the hall from Marsha Clark's office and down the hall from Bill's office. I mean, this case took on, uh, to say it took on a life of its own, mm-hmm. isn't really doing justice to what it was like at that time in LA when this case was getting started.
0: It yeah. seemed there was a lot culturally going on as well, right? We're talking in the wake of Rodney King and and some other events that had happened. Am I wrong on that adam you
2: are astutely correct (laughs) yeah that that trial occurred in a social or societal context uh which is often not appreciated but for you know those of us lawyers in the criminal courts building at the time uh certainly the shadow of the rodney king case and the acquittal of the four white officers in simi valley uh hung over our case like a dark, oppressive shadow. Uh, the jurors themselves, or some of the jurors themselves to, uh, upon discharge from their duties, 16 months uh, at, at, um, at the conclusion of 16 months of trial, uh, stated as much, and in and in, in amongst uh, the, the cheering and high-fiving and stuff, they, uh, jurors as they were Sequestered, if you will recall, and they were discharged to a sheriff's substation to rejoin, rejoin family and loved ones. They were high-fiving and laughing and was going, We did it, we did it. That was payback for Rodney King. That was payback for Rodney King. And sheriff's deputies that day, on the afternoon of verdict day, came and told me that. And they said, Bill, you guys never had a chance. Now, uh, Adam, if you ever have roughly seven and a half hours that you don't know what to do with. Um, <laughs> there is, I believe it's on Netflix. It, it is long, but there is a, a documentary which won an Oscar and an Emmy, I think, but it's called OJ Made in America. Yes. Um, yeah, I haven't see it, seen it, but I have to watch it. You'll, you'll see me in there. I, <laughs> I have the longest unedited portion in the entire film wherein I describe my uh, belief as to how the two murders occurred within the crime scene, just based on the evidence. But more importantly, the very point you raised is it goes into the societal context of OJ's upbringing, Rodney King, the, the Watts riots in Los Angeles, which occurred in 1965. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also, uh, Uh, affirms. I was shocked when some of the jurors from the trial actually repeated their refrain about that was payback for Rodney King. That was payback for Rodney King. The jurors never deliberated on the case. They were out about three, three and a half hours. Some of that consumed with a little bit of readback. Uh, They never looked at the exhibits. They knew what they were going to do. They came out and did it uh, to the disruption of society in general. Um, but I, I recommend the documentary to you. It, it really, uh, affirms that notion that this, this was a case dictated not so much by law and evidence, but by uh, larger societal forces.
0: Right. And, you know, had things been done properly to that point, maybe not, you're not in that position. Right. And, and that's the, that's the unfortunate part We're we're seeing the, those cultural, those same cultural tensions today. Yes. Um, and and so uh, and I'm sorry. I don't mean to imply that you guys didn't prosecute the case properly. I mean, like you know, people felt like the the law wasn't on their side, um, and and uh, and uh, you know, I I feel like um, you know, listening to you talk about it, it's it's kind of scary to think of what we in the media, what we disseminate, has such an effect on these cases. How could you possibly keep jurors? from being, I I don't know what the, what was the term you used? It was like, it was sequestered. 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 How could you keep them away from that? I remember being, I was nine years old and I remember the OJ reports every day, every single day. My parents would watch that up in Toronto. And, you know, it's just, and and like, you know, I didn't know, I'd never watched OJ play football. I'd never seen any of the movies he was in. I didn't know who he was. I knew he was a guy who was on trial. That's what I knew. And uh, I, I just, in in looking at, at LA in that context, you 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 mentioned obviously Compton. You mentioned some of the things you had to go through, and then you 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 go through this after a trial like that. Alan mentioned, you know, you get you get exhausted. You 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 know, you come come down off a trial after a 16 month trial. Bill, what
2: do you do? Like, how? What was the effect on you personally? Oh. Uh- very good question. It it took me weeks to decompress. It, what do you do? That trial, much as Alan suggested earlier, when you're in trial, it's 24-7. You are thinking about it all the time. The Simpson case itself was very dynamic. There are uh, some things I can't go into, but there were some developments even late in the case, which might've broken things open. Um, and they had to be dealt with. You know, normally when you go into trial, trial lawyers like to know everything about the case. They, you want to know every scrap of paper, every photograph. You want to know everything. That was impossible with Simpson because there were uh, external forces and events that were impacting the trial that were going on, if not daily, weekly. Mm. It was very, very dynamic. Now, why you say, why uh, are you asked, uh, sequester the jury? Because I did a study uh, of high-profile cases, so-called trials of the century preceding OJ, the the Lindbergh baby kidnapping case, Mm -hmm. Uh, Billy Sol case out of Texas. Uh, And in reading about those cases, several of which uh, matriculated to the U.S. Supreme Court, so there's a pretty good record, I saw... Uh, Again, this uh, craziness of of media coverage, uh, given the technology available to the media at the Times, in terms of secreting microphones under council table and and a lot, you know, back in like the 40s. So I knew that we had to, even if practically it was probably fruitless, on the record, we had to take advantage. Uh, advantage of every possible uh, prophylactic measure to ensure the integrity of the jury. And even though I a sequestered jury, is there going to be pillow talk? Is there going to be information seeping in there? Of course there is. Of course. Uh, we did it. So in the event that we actually secured a conviction, knowing it would probably, given all the issues involved, it would end up in the U.S. Supreme Court one day. We had to be on record doing everything within our means, within our legal means to protect the integrity of the jury, even though real-world practicality, and no. You're not going to keep the jury um, pure and Mm -hmm. sacrosanct. It just wasn't going to happen.
1: Bill, I wonder if you remember this. You and I, uh, during the trial, were at a Springsteen concert he was playing an acoustic show uh, in a small theater in LA and the trial was going on And, uh, and you and I were seated, you know, probably third or fourth row from the stage. And we were standing up together, you know, maybe a half hour before Bruce would come out. And a gentleman approached you from the side. I mean, you were getting recognized everywhere inside the theater but a gentleman approached you from the side and came over and said, "Hi Bill, how are you?" It was Dustin Hoffman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow.
1: Yeah. And oh. and Dustin Hoffman had I'm standing there next to Bill and he's giving Bill his theory on on the OJ case and and uh, crazy
2: it, it was. I, I certainly remember that evening. Uh, <laughs> Alan, I've, I've got to correct the record a little bit. Uh, it was after the trial. It was okay. probably one of my first going out in public events following the trial. I think it was it was barely a month after the trial, maybe five weeks, something like that. Uh, but while still in trial, as we were approaching the end, I was working on crafting arguments you know, for our closing arguments for the jury. And I had reams of notes. uh, And ultimately, it was uh, Marsha Clark and Chris Darden who delivered the closing arguments. But uh, I, all during the trial, I had put together what I thought were good arguments uh, and which I would have delivered myself had I had that opportunity. Well, during that time periods, as we were preparing arguments, I get a call from the front office, from the DDA Gil Garcetti's office. And I'm told by one of the secretaries up there, uh, Bill, Dustin Hoffman is on the phone, and he wants to talk to you about ideas for your closing argument. (laughs) And... (laughs) And the DA wants you to take the call. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I uh, end up talking with Dustin Hoffman on the phone. And, you know, and again, time was at a premium. So part of me is going, oh, whew, boy, I, I don't have time for this. But uh, I have to say, Dustin had a, some pretty good ideas. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I did take notes and somewhere in my boxes of, memorabilia, I've got notes from Dustin Hoffman. So I actually talked to him. Uh, He he even talked about, you know, after the trial, maybe you can come up to my house sometime and and sure, Dustin, thanks, you know, and all that. And then boom, you know, back to business. So that night at the Springsteen Acoustic Show, you know, out in public and like Alan says, people were, you know, the the recognition factor was uh, very high at the time. And I, I feel this little tug on the sleeve of my jacket and I turn around and there's Dustin Hoffman. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, <Alan>, remember your, <laughs> your expressions, just like. <laughs>
0: wow.
2: <laughs> and, you know, it, Dustin, he was kind of, kind of sheepish, you know, kind of high and, you know, just, you know, had a short little conversation. Then he, he took off, but. That's a very L.A.
0: thing to happen, by the way, gentlemen. I just okay. hope you know that. That's not a normal city thing. That's an L.A. thing. Oh, yeah. So L.A. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very L.A. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I have to call out Alan here, um, and and I made note of it off the start uh, because, um, you know, growing up, I had a reverence for West Coast hip hop. And uh, and Alan called Suge Knight Suge Knight off the yeah. off the top, and I remember I actually remember a great Howard Stern bit where they had Suge Knight on, and they had somebody named Evil Dave, so it was Evil Dave Letterman, um, and they would he kept calling him Suge right to his face, uh, and Suge Knight got a little upset about that. But that's a case where you know um, obviously there's cultural impacts there, Bill, but that was a huge huge deal at the time too. It doesn't necessarily get the recognition now. Um, but if you don't mind, I'd love to dive in a little bit on it if you've got the time, because I am absolutely fascinated about how that case was handled and everything that led up to it.
2: Okay. Uh, and I'm, I'll give you uh, kind of a short version. So yes. um, I was oh, I was back in the saddle as director of, of central operations. During the OJ case, uh, a case came up involving Suge Knight. A pair of uh, assault with a deadly weapon cases where or, uh, charges where uh, Shug took shots at some guys who were using a telephone in his studio and Shug had told them you can't use that phone. They did. And so Shug's uh, manner of dealing with it was to take a couple shots at them. Um, nobody was hit. Uh, bullet holes were embedded in the walls of a studio. And the case, I was aware of the case, uh, but in the midst of Simpson, I was aware we had it in Central. It was assigned to a particular senior deputy district attorney. Uh, and the long and short of it was uh, the case, our, our victims on the case, the two ostensible victims uh, were paid off by Shug, and they declined to cooperate with the prosecution. So Shug was put on probation, no time, Mm-hmm. Just straight probation. Uh, with the promise that if he were to commit a new offense while on probation, he would be sentenced to prison for the max behind the two charges nine years. So um I was aware and
1: didn't he plead guilty to that?
2: Yeah, it was a deal. Wow. Yeah, it was yeah. okay. So he pled guilty to the
1: to the underlying offense yes. on the condition that he get probation.
2: Yeah. So uh after Simpson, then I'm returning to normalcy with my, my day job as director. Uh, it comes to my attention uh, that Shug Knight I just had a couple of dirty marijuana tests, which ostensibly could be violations of probation. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, not that serious in the scheme of things. Probably little to no sentencing impact beyond that. Um, well, the... <laughs> I guess only in L.A., Um, it also comes to my attention while that case is pending that our lawyer on the case has a a daughter uh, who I, I think she was probably in her early 20s and that she has signed a record contract with Death Row Records. Oh, the daughter of our lawyer. In addition, it turns out that our lawyer's recently deceased mother had some property a house in the malibu colony and that our lawyer uh, had thought it advisable to rent that malibu house to death row records uh suge knight uh, and suge's lawyer at the time Hmm. so enormous conflict of interest which our lawyer failed to appreciate and I took the case from him as a court appearance was imminent. Uh, I went to court. I, you know, I couldn't hand this handle this or hand this off to a, uh, you know, a, a young deputy DA because there's so much going on behind it and, and the integrity of our office is at stake. Sure. This yeah. was reported. Our, our lawyer as Daughter has a record contract and there's a, a photo of our lawyer, the daughter and Suge Knight and Shug Knight's lawyer at a restaurant in the San Fernando Valley having dinner together. This is horrible for the office. So I thought I've got to walk this one myself. Uh, this, this is a mess. So I went to court and uh, the proceedings were continued and the judge looked at me uh, kind of in, in an imploring fashion at the end. He said, Mr. Hodgman, I certainly hope we get to see you again on this case. Uh, and I at the time said, "Sure, Your Honor, uh, I'll be back." At the time, I was thinking, you know, this this wasn't going to take much time. I'll, I'll, you know, do the best I can. But then I start doing the lawyer like thing. I start digging into the case, and I find out there's an incident in Las Vegas following a Mike Tyson fight, where uh, Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur and Suge's boss uh, posse beat down a uh, crip drug dealer from uh, Southern California in the lobby of the MGM Grand, and portions of that beat down are captured on security video. Now we have a violation of probation. Now this is an act of violence. Suge is on camera beating the uh, beating this the the victim pretty heavily, stomping on him. Um, so. Later that night, of course, became infamous because Tupac's in a car with Suge, and uh, Tupac gets shot down, sitting right next to Suge, and killed. So um, I assemble the evidence. I work with Las Vegas authorities, local sheriff's gang units, and stuff, and I file uh, a new violation of probation on Suge, basically, the assault beatdown uh on this uh, long beach trip, And uh uh it this was post-OJ for me. It felt good to be back in court mm-hmm. by myself, you know, the, the lone gunslinger once again, you know, no entourage, just just me. Uh suge at the end had 10 lawyers. Oh my <laughs> god at the table. Whoa. He had the cream. Well, it was to his disadvantage. Actually, he had the cream of, you know, the West Side Defense Bar. uh, Oscar Goodman, uh, who was the top mob lawyer out of Vegas later. became the
1: mayor, mayor of Vegas. Vegas.
2: Uh, Wow. uh, Another mob lawyer uh, came into the fray. um, And I I was just kind of digging it because I thought it's me against them. And I've got the goods and uh, anyway, litigated the case and you would have thought it was World War Three. Once again, the courtroom is packed, although Mm -hmm. this time largely by gang members who've been (laughs) uh, thoroughly screened and patted down. But uh, a lot of media attention. Uh, In the end, um, I prevailed. Shug was found in violation of probation behind the beatdown of uh, that so-called victim. And off he went to prison. During the course of the pendency of those proceedings, Adam, in weird places, uh, I'd run into people from the entertainment world. Uh, My wife and I were up in Ojai, which is kind of an idyllic little hamlet about an hour and a half from L.A. up up in the hills uh, towards Santa Barbara. And the hotel we were staying, there there was uh, some uh, recording industry executives there. And my wife and I were walking through the grounds. And uh, again, I guess the OJ recognition factor, but the, uh, uh, this fellow comes up to me and he's this recording industry mogul. And he says, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. Chug is terrorizing our entire industry. He's barging into our offices, uh, threatening receptionists, uh, demanding contracts for certain artists. And and they just come in and rip open file cabinets and take stuff. And everybody's afraid to do anything. And and there's a a number of stories that ended up uh, reported in the media of Suge just terrorizing people. Mm -hmm. But I was getting that from different disparate sources like, do something about Suge. And uh should going to prison behind that case, that actually led to the downfall of death row records mm-hmm. and certainly uh, a diminution of his his power and sway in the community and in the recording <laughs> community. <laughs> who's who's that? that? It's my little dog, I think, announcing <laughs> the presence of the mailman. Also. <laughs> 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 this dog is about yay big. I yeah. just got a big bark, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Layla. <laughs>
0: great name, great name. Thank you, Bill, for the rundown. I, I'm sorry to have put that in at the end, but I'm just fascinated with that whole era. And, and the case, you know, the things that you talk about, obviously uh, in my other job, I'm a uh, music radio DJ. Um, so, you know, as a morning show host and that sort of thing, you get, you love those sorts of stories and that type of music history. I've heard that from people from that era that they were terrified of him. And they were terrified of, you know, exactly what you said. So I was, I'm curious to, knew, to know how much into that you got, but that's amazing. So thank you. I appreciate that. You indulged me.
2: <laughs> sure. No, gladly. That's, uh, um, yeah, a lot of stories. Well, a that, lot of stories. Some I've shared and more to, <laughs> more on that one, maybe another time. But okay. Very interesting case. <laughs> Fair
1: I, I have uh, one last question about the OJ Simpson case. Uh, And I don't know if you've ever been asked this particular question, but do you think the result would have been different if you were, in fact, the lead prosecutor and you were running the case the way that you wanted to run the case?
2: I have been asked that question numerous times over the years. Um, And. Uh, I'll I'll say this, and this isn't out of false modesty. Um, It, I felt I had a better connection with that jury uh, through the art of jury selection that I spoke earlier. Um, I, you know, I pondered that myself. If I had, you know, more complete command and control of the case, would things have been different? I think ultimately, given the jury we selected, which was the best of a very bad lot. And uh, I'll I'll credit Marsha Clark. We had a a very good system for anticipating what jurors would come up and where, where would, there would be an optimum point. Although really the the best of a very bad lot uh, where we felt we had a jury that would work for us, knowing who was going to come down the line. We had, 300 jurors potentially in the queue. Um, with that jury, and the fact uh, this is little known or little remembered, uh, 10 of the original 12 jurors were excused from the case for, for either actual or purported misconduct. Hmm. So the panel that we picked was not the panel we saw at the end. We had a flood of alternates. There was even a, a concern that we were going to run out of jurors due to. Misconduct. Um, I, I would have hoped, and this was something I was preparing for in my job, is that we would have a second opportunity to go at Simpson. Meaning, I wasn't sure we could get a unanimous uh, guilty verdict out of that panel, but I was hopeful that we could hang it. And I did feel with the passage of time, with um, tightening up the case and maybe putting some different trial horses on it, um, a different result could occur, and particularly with the passage of time. But again, that the shadow of Rodney King was palpable hanging over that case. And, you know, as we saw with the civil case, um, you know, the, uh, a year and a half or so later, the, the jury in Santa Monica had no problem with finding Simpson uh, legally responsible for the wrongful death of both Ron and Nicole. So I felt that you know if we had a second bite at the uh, at the apple, so to speak, uh, we could prevail. But with that panel itself, um, I think unanimity was something that we would never obtain. I wish it were otherwise, but that's the honest answer.
1: Right, right. You, you retired from the DA's office in 2019. Uh, can
2: you tell us what you've been doing since then? Uh, sure. Um, you know, on, on the kind of the professional side, uh, I do some guest lecturing at USC for uh, they have uh a public safety leadership program and an executive leadership program, and quite frankly, I, I use the Simpson case and lessons learned from that case uh, as examples of, of how how to lead and uh, pitfalls to avoid in a uh, high-profile crisis situation. You know, and like with Simpson, as you pointed out, Alan you know, we had media crawling all over the case. And, and quite frankly, to me, the Simpson case never felt really like a murder trial. It, it felt like the spectacle, the media spectacle, which you saw it, there was so many, well, so many stories, so many elements of just things not going the way they should, uh, under the circumstances. Uh, so, I, I do that. Uh, I do some advisory work for the National Homicide Investigators Association. Um, I've uh, taken up golf, <laughs> 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 which I, I have to confess, I was very poor at. I mean, I never really devoted myself to it at all. But my wife and I, in the pandemic, said, you know, we've got to get outside and play a game. And uh, so that was golf. So, I'm, I'm coming along. <laughs> uh, you, you know golf it's an elusive quest <laughs> yes yes it is a mental game if there ever was one. Oh, of course <laughs> yes so so important um and so uh, a lot of reading a lot of guitar playing i take guitar lessons i mean i've played guitar for years but i was always on a certain plateau that i could get by and if someone told me the chords to a song i could i could play along with anyone but I understood very little about music theory and some of the uh, uh, nuances of soloing and the like. So I, I'm coming along with that. Um, and you know, family issues, which um, I've been able to devote myself to um, where I had to step in and help out some people. Um, and yeah, uh, You know, presently, my wife and I are assisting uh, a Ukrainian refugee, a young man um, who made it to the U.S. from the Czech Republic, um, but whose home was in Mariupol and is completely destroyed now. Thankfully, his parents made it to West Ukraine. So we're doing trying to help out a little bit there. It's our, our small part with that very tragic situation. Mm-hmm.
1: incredible wow incredible now bill um you've told me about uh, a lecture from a professor of yours or a professor in law school that had a tremendous impact on you and your professional career and i know you know what what i'm talking about and your telling of the story of that lecture has actually had a tremendous impact on me in my life. And and I believe if you share with the audience uh, the contents of that lecture, it will connect with someone or maybe even more than someone and have an impact on their life. I'm told that our podcast has a relatively young audience, Mm -hmm. um, young compared to my 57 years. And I'm wondering if you would share with us uh, the sage words that you heard one day and pass it down to the next generation.
2: Gladly, Alan. I'm I'm, uh, happy to be the steward of, of passing that story on. Um, most of what I learned in law school, I've forgotten, <laughs> but I do recall my first year in law school in contracts cat class of all things. Um, the professor was professor Roscoe Barrow and he had a, uh, a certain lecture, which had become famous in a sense, um, over the years, even prior to my being in Professor Barrow's class. It was known as the PV House Lecture. And uh, on the anointed day, my first year of law school in contracts class, the, it was a, a large lecture hall, but every available nook and cranny and space in that lecture hall was occupied by students, second and third year students, even some lawyers, who tried to cram their way into the lecture uh, in the lecture hall to hear once again the PV house lecture. And Alan, you, you remember how packed the courtroom was when the Keating verdicts came in? Yeah. This was akin to that. Every little space was occupied. People had their cassette recorders out to record the lecture. So, what did Professor Barrow talk about? Well, in the contracts casebook, there was a section which occupied about a third of a page about the pv house case and in the pv house case it occurred in the midwest and it had to do with uh in a very elemental sense mr and mrs pv house uh owned a farm and i believe it was the monsanto corporation came in and approached the pv houses and said okay uh you have on your farm we've determined this uh this valuable ore which we want to mine and uh we want to sign a contract with you to uh come in and mine that ore and we agree to specifically perform at the end of our stay here we will restore your land the way it was and mr and mrs Peavy house being guileless people uh said okay and signed the contract Uh, the corporation came in, they mined the ore and they left and they didn't do anything about restoring the land whatsoever. So the PV houses went to town, they got a lawyer, they sued, I believe it was Monsanto, uh, for, uh, following through on the contract for specific performance and, uh, the case went up to the appellate courts. They, the trial judge decided against the PV houses, basically saying there was what was known as a liquidated damages portion in the in the contract, which basically meant in lieu of restoring the land, the corporation simply pay a bunch of money to the PV houses and you guys take care of it. Mm-hmm. And the case went up on appeal and the appellate court affirmed the trial court against the PV houses. And Professor Barrow uh, you know, stood at you know, the front of this lecture hall. He had a, a little lectern in front of him and his casebook, which was annotated and had little post-its and things. But I remember him closing the casebook in an almost reverential manner and centering it on the lectern in front of him. And he said to all of us seated, you know, in the lecture hall, he said, so ladies and gentlemen, this was a perfectly legal result. However, it was not the just result. It was not the right result. The PV houses should have had their land restored the way it was as the big corporation was contractually bound to do. And they didn't. And Professor Barrow looked out amongst us. I remember him looking up in the arena like lecture hall, and he said, uh, The result in this case uh, was the work of legal stonecutters. Yes, it was legal, but it was the work of legal stonecutters. And he said, As he looked out amongst us, he said, I hope amongst you there are at least a few Michelangelos. A Michelangelo who will always worked to craft the proper, just and right result. And with that, he picked up his contracts case book, and, and again, the, the lecture hall was just silent. and he walked out the side door, you know out into the hallway. And that case stuck with me, uh, my, really more than any other case out of law school. Uh, and so in terms of being a trial lawyer, I always aspired to be a Michelangelo, you know, uh, and I figured that was a constant aspiration. It's just something you never quite achieved. It was something to aspire to. But uh, Alan, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. That, wow. I hope that story is meaningful to your uh, podcast viewers. Well, I
1: can, I can tell you, Bill, that uh, you, you told me that story when I was a very young prosecutor in L.A., probably 25 years old, and it has stayed with me all these years and many times um, when I was trying cases and many times when I was working with NHL players, uh, whether it was a negotiation or personal issue or going above and beyond needing to do something to help my client. I have said to myself, I have thought to myself in my head, be a Michelangelo, not a stone cutter. And uh, I thank you very much for sharing that with me. When I was uh, young and, and hungry and eager, and uh, needed a mentor and you were the greatest mentor in the DA's office and in, as a friend and in life that anybody could have ever hoped for. I wish every person in this world a friend like Bill Hodgman and a mentor like Bill Hodgman. And uh, I think it's the perfect way to to end uh, your appearance today. Uh, And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on and uh, sharing the stories and your experiences with all of us today.
2: Alan, thank you very much. Your, your words mean a lot to me. Thank you, Mio Fratello. And Adam, thanks to you as well. You had some very astute questions. Uh, I, recommend that documentary to you oj made in america i think you in particular would gain a lot of insight as a result of that so uh, but thank you both it was my pleasure to be able to participate today and alan i look forward to us getting together it's same here
1: and it's going to be soon (laughs) yeah
2: This has been Agent Provocateur with
1: Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com
2: SDPN.